if you end up having a body that's able to develop disease, you're somebody who has demonstrated that you're at high risk of having these things occur. I think people are very responsive when they have a heart attack or something happens. They're very responsive and willing and they're receptive to making changes. But I think what will happen over time is that enthusiasm will wane unless they find that they're getting something from making these changes. That was Dr. Heather Shankman, and this is the Yogi Triathlete Podcast. Hey, YT community, it's Jess, your host. Welcome to the show. It was just a few days ago that my heart skipped a little beat. A memory popped up on my Facebook profile announcing episode number one and the launch of the Yogi Triathlete Podcast. In response to people asking us to start a podcast and BJ and I realizing that no one was going to do it for us, I headed to Guitar Center and purchased top-notch equipment, of which there's still one item that I have no idea what it does, but regardless, I plug it in every week in hopes to create more vibrancy in the world. The YT community has grown, and we are so grateful to be the stewards of this podcast. Yogi Triathlete, the mothership of this show, is no doubt a part of our purpose in this life. Through movement, mindfulness, athleticism, plant-based nutrition, animal ambassadorship, acceptance, and compassion for all, we are here and committed to walking the warrior path, and we are fired up to have you along our side. Today's guest, Dr. Heather Shankman, gives us many reasons to continue on this path as sharing her story will no doubt further the impact of great change she is making in the field of medicine Along with saving lives every single day, Heather is committed to creating awareness of the crucial connection between exercise and diet on the health of our hearts. Heather is an interventional cardiologist, she is an Ironman triathlete, and she is vegan. Heather's patients run the gamut from those who say they will never be vegan and those who go all in. Of course, those who go all in are the ones that Heather never sees again in her office. She is an advocate of any step in the direction of health, and so she spends time with her patients to help educate them on the benefits of a plant-based whole foods diet on heart health. She keeps it simple because in reality, folks, eating healthy is not complicated. Pick up the apple and take a bite. She herself serves as a shining example for her patients as she is the doctor that walks the walk. Two-time Ironman and accomplished marathoner, we caught up with Heather in her home in LA on our trip back from Mendocino just a few weeks ago. She welcomed us into her beautiful home that she shares with her two retired rescue greyhounds, Ozzy and Curves. Shocker, right? I often wonder if it's possible to record an episode of the YTP without a canine being present. But all I have to say about that is that Dogs must be the spirit animals of the show, and I am totally fine with that. Heather shares her plant-based story, which stems from a deal made between her dad and her brother, and we talk about life after Ironman, and we talk about the pressures that we tend to put on ourselves as athletes to keep going further. But let it be known, This doctor is no couch potato. Heather is currently training for the Mountains to Beach Marathon later this month, a lightning-fast Boston Marathon qualifier course that takes its runners on a gradual descent from 700 feet in Ojai to sea level at the race finish on the Ventura coastline. Heather leaves us no excuses between her full-time job as a cardiologist and training load, all of which she is nailing on a plant-based diet. Thank you so much for tuning in today and for the support that you are lending to the life of the YTP. We are so grateful for it all. If you're wanting to support the show more, check out our Patreon page where you can set up a monthly donation of your choosing. And now, without further ado, I give to you our chat with the vegan heart doc, Dr. Heather Shankman. Um... People say that when they have experiences like that and you just kind of put all your trust out into the world that you really start to see the beauty and humanity and that's exactly what we saw. That's cool. It was really, really cool. If you you question if there is still that person-to-person human contact going on in this world, we discovered it across the country. 
Yeah. Like we it was really cool. engage with people and you could feel a connection. It just wasn't like chit chat. Like yeah. people still exist out there that are like truly care and yeah. and want to have a conversation and Mm-hmm. And then Clark was a great, he was like the grand connector because everybody wanted to pet him and all the kids wanted to pet him and everything. So it was, it was really wonderful. Yeah. Uh, but now we're here, right here, right now in your beautiful home. And I already started recording so we can, um, we can just get rolling on this. But thank you so much for opening up your home to us. Um, I was emailing back and forth with Heather and I was like, you know, where do you want to meet or whatever? And she like just gives out her address, like, come on over to my house. I'm like, this is wonderful. (laughs) I love it. Here we go. More people opening up their home to us. Yeah. So um, I originally heard about you through a Facebook friend had shared that Forks Over Knives article, which I'm thinking a lot of people got to know you from that article as well. And you're just such a perfect fit for the yogi triathlete community and yogi triathlete itself because we're all about triathlon, endurance sports, incorporating a plant-based diet into that for optimal health. And then I've also seen that you've dabbled on the mat a little bit in doing some yoga. A little bit. bit. (laughs) I want to talk about that. And that's, you know, that's primarily what we do. So this is such a captive audience for you and um, I'm psyched to have you here. So you are an interventional cardiologist? Yes, that is correct. And what what is the interventional? Like, break it down for us. <laughs> sure. Now, interventional to a layperson who's plant-based sounds like so cool, like somebody who cares, who wants to intervene on my life, but that's, that's not actually what it is. <laughs> an interventional cardiologist actually is a cardiologist who has additional specialized training to do angioplasties to open up blocked arteries of the heart. So I did my medical school training. I did three years of internal medicine followed by three years of general cardiology and then a year of specifically interventional cardiology at Tufts New England Medical Center. So I spent a whole year in the cardiac catheterization laboratory learning how to open up people's blocked arteries. Whoa. And it's not as quote unquote invasive as one would think, right? You kind of thread it up. Tell us the procedure. Sure. What do, you, what do you do on a daily basis? Because I know I get up and I meditate and then I might write a blog post, but I have a feeling you're doing something with a pretty major impact on people's lives. Well, my, my morning sounds pretty similar to yours. I wake up, I go running, and then I go to work and I might see a couple of patients, but a couple of times a week I'm in the cardiac catheterization laboratory and sometimes that's scheduled and sometimes that's not scheduled, like if somebody has a heart attack at three o'clock in the morning, because unfortunately heart attacks happen all, all times a day. So a cardiac cath- catheterization that involves going through the artery either at the top of the leg or the artery in the wrist and feeding catheters up to the heart and then injecting dye into the arteries and taking some x-ray pictures to see where that dye goes to basically see if there are significant narrowings or blockages within those arteries. So like how far up the dye goes is where you'll be able to see where the blockage starts? Well, my catheter goes all the way from either the wrist or the leg goes all the way up to the heart. So the tip of the catheter is right at the tip of one of the major coronary arteries. And we inject dye into that coronary artery directly and we look at all the branches of that artery. And so where the dye would probably fade out is it, or, or the dye is just exposing, allowing you to see what's going on? It lets us see the outline of the artery. Okay, all right. So why would somebody have a blocked artery? Why would somebody have a blocked artery? (laughs) There are a lot of reasons why, and some is genetics, but the vast majority of why people have coronary artery disease or the diseases that I treat is very much lifestyle. So it's lack of exercise, not necessarily eating the right foods, stress, cigarette smoking, diabetes, high blood pressure, high cholesterol. Why particularly stress? I I see a lot on stress increasing belly fat, but how is stress affecting our hearts? I think stress affects our hearts in a lot of ways. Um, you know, it increases the level of catecholamines running through our bodies, kind of puts us in more of a, a fight or flight type of zone. It also does not help us to make the right choices. So if you're stressed out and you need to prepare a meal, you're not going to go to the effort to prepare like a healthy meal with vegetables and you know, healthy things. You're going to go like grab fast food or throw something in the microwave that's not necessarily going to be the healthiest for you. And stress is not allowing ourselves to even experience that healing nervous system. So without that, we don't have the body's natural ability to really heal ourselves. Absolutely. And we're in a chronic yeah. state of stress. Yeah. 
Have you ever seen anyone walk into your office who looks physically fit? I've taken care of a number of very physically fit people, yes. Because we hear, you know, and actually, um, sadly, a man died yesterday on the swim of Ironman Texas. Now, I don't know how, and so, you know, it's very sad for the community and the family, of course. But it just got me thinking, you know, my own cousin, her husband died on the swim of a triathlon. He had a massive heart attack. He was, according to the doctor, um, he was a time bomb. He was in a desperate need of a quadruple bypass, and nobody knew. He had, talking to his wife, he had all the markers, but he rode the MS-150 the weekend before. He was, you know, he was a fit guy. He was... So this idea in our society that if you are fit or you're skinny, you're healthy, and that's untrue because you're actually seeing it walk into your office. It is true. You know, there are a fair number of deaths, unfortunately, in endurance events. And when you look at a triathlon, the event where you see most people, unfortunately, die, it's, it's during the swim. Mm -hmm. You know, later on during the event, it's less common. There's certainly bike crashes or certainly people can have a heart attack or something happen to them during, during the event. And it's unfortunate. I think that when you break it down, people who are younger, like who are under 35, more often than not a death during sports is gonna be related to something congenital, like an abnormality of their heart that they were born with. When it comes to people who are over 35, more often than not, it's, it's coronary artery disease or something along those lines. And a lot of that, as you were mentioning, is lifestyle choices. So when you look at these athletes that are going heavy on the paleo diet, what are you, what's your take on that? I worry about people who are going excessively with, with a diet like a paleo diet. I think there are good things about paleo, like the emphasis on produce and staying away from dairy, but the emphasis on eating meat and even shunning beans, beans which are very healthy for you, and you know the emphasis on meat certainly is not good for the diseases that I treat. And the quantity of meat, right? Indeed, think, absolutely. Yeah. We know that people who consume more meat have more incidence of diabetes, more incidence of heart disease, and certain kinds of cancers. So recently, we get the question a lot about, you know, what's wrong with eggs? Well, what's, I'm, I'm totally plant-based, but what's wrong with eggs? And, you know, I'm not a doctor. I'm not a nutritionist. I'm an endurance athlete that is thriving on a plant-based diet, so I can only speak from my own experience. But when I look at the research on eggs and articles on eggs, and you know, and I'm not diving in like Dr. Greger to peer-reviewed published studies or anything, but I, I'm, I'm looking at some trusted sources like Dr. Greger, that my understanding is that our bodies make enough cholesterol. So my question is always, as far as the egg thing goes, because people will say, well, I get it from my neighbor, and they, you know, there's no cruelty there. It's the, the chicken, and I know where it's coming from, and they have names and all this stuff. But the question that keeps coming up for me is, well, why would we need to ever eat food that is heavily laden with cholesterol if our bodies make what we need? We don't need to eat food that has cholesterol in it. Our bodies make more than enough cholesterol. Our bodies need cholesterol in order for certain cellular events to occur, but we make more than enough that we don't have to rely on obtaining it from eating it from other sources. So never really would we be in need as human beings, the way we have evolved today, that we would need to eat food that is heavy in cholesterol. There's, there's no need to consume cholesterol. Okay, and I think that's a great answer it's, it for the great, eggs yeah. because eggs have a lot of cholesterol in them. And I just wanted to be clear on that because we, we did get challenged on a recent post. And so I said to BJ, I'm like, well, this is a really, this is actually really good news because we're, we're being seen in a, in a situation where maybe we're having influence. So that's mm -hmm. wonderful that we're now getting challenged. I like that. That's yeah, kind of a, that's a mile marker. Right. We're not being ignored <laughs> because I think that this message is one that I want to yell from the mountaintops. And that being, and I know you're a very passionate vegan, you know, for the animals and all of that, and I want to get into your story, but people who are walking into your office not necessarily are coming there because they want to become vegan. So how do you approach that resistance, um, or are you getting any resistance? It's interesting. I've been in practice as a cardiologist for nearly 10 years. I finished my training in 2007, and 
I think the way that patients accept the message, it's changed because awesome. there are plant-based movement has really taken off. You've got movies like Forks Over Knives that people are becoming aware of and more and more people are consuming plant-based diets and just about everybody who comes into my office knows somebody who's who happens to be a vegan. So that makes it a little bit easier. I work for a managed care organization, so I see the full gamut of patients. I see a lot of managed care patients who see me because my name happens to be the name that's on their referral. I see a fair number of people who seek me out because I am plant-based and that's the approach that I, that I push. But when I'm talking to somebody who doesn't necessarily have an ideal diet, which is more often than not, you know, it's somebody who's eating a lot of animal products, a lot of restaurant food, a lot of processed food, a lot of sugary food. You know, I, I try to start by talking about what to include in their diet, because I think when you talk to people and you tell them what to take out, they say, well, what do I eat? So I always start with what to add in. And more often than not, we talk about adding in fruits and vegetables because it shocks me. There are people who can get through a day without eating a vegetable or a fruit. I mean, I, I personally <laughs> can't fathom right, it, right. but people do it. Um, so I, I make that a starting point for some people. I say, okay, well, here's the first thing we're going to do. We're going to incorporate a vegetable with lunch and a vegetable with dinner, and I want you to eat fruit for, for one or two of your snacks per day. And that's a good starting point for people. But I also do talk about animal products and animal protein. And I try to encourage my patients to, at the very least, lean towards a more vegetarian diet. I talk to them about how plant-based diets have been demonstrated to reverse plaque buildup within the arteries, that it's the only diet that has data that demonstrates that power. And that interests some people. But I have people who come in and say, you know, I'm. I know about you and um, I'm never gonna be vegan. They say, okay, fine. Well, let's forget labels. Let's talk about what changes you can make to improve your health. Why don't we eat a couple of vegetarian meals per week? You can't shut that down. And especially with the access point is so big now for people to walk into this type of lifestyle mm -hmm. that you really, I mean, the the cheeses, even though they are, the, a lot of them out there are highly processed, but it's still like you can have cheese on your nachos. Absolutely. You know, like the, what do we like? The Heidi Ho. Yeah, Heidi Ho. Heidi Ho spicy cheese. You know, you just put that on some nachos if we want to kind of live it up a little bit. <laughs> and understanding that we're taking in processed food. But what I do love about that one, it's a vegetable base. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's not so heavy on the nuts. You might get pulled out of here for an angioplasty. No. 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 <laughs> <laughs> All angioplasties are on hold in the Sherman Oaks area. They are. I switched call just so I could talk to you. Guys. Oh, you're so awesome. And you. you even snuck one in, right? Did you sneak in a procedure before we met today? I did, yes. You're like, I got to get my fix. <laughs> so are you giving them this advice? Is this for people who you've operated on or that you've worked with? Or is this just a consultation? First. Oh, all, all across all the board. Across the board. Okay. I happen to be the one interventional cardiologist of my group, so I do angioplasties on the patients of all of my partners. So even if they're not meeting me in the office, if they see me in the cardiac catheterization laboratory and I do an angioplasty on them, you know that that's a teaching point. It's, sir, I just put a stent in your left anterior descending coronary artery. You're going to be on these new medications, but you need to make some changes and you need to be eating better and you need to be exercising. So I wanted to talk about that, so stents. So yes. what is a stent and why is it used? A stent is basically a scaffolding to hold the artery open. If you have an artery that's severely diseased and you inflate a balloon within it, within it to expand it, more often than not, over time, over the next several months, it's gonna collapse again. So that scaffolding, the stent, holds that artery open. And over time, what will happen is the lining of the artery will grow over the stent and the stent will become part of your body. Okay, so it's never really removed. It's just sort of, it's placed and then The absorbed. body kind of swallows it up. Pretty much, the body's yes. so brilliant. It's like, what is this? This is foreign. Mm -hmm. Let's make it a part of us. Mm -hmm. So it encapsulates it. Mm -hmm. So now that, so the stent's in there. Mm -hmm. And so they continue to live their life and hopefully they take the advice and start to change things. But is, do you ever see a pattern where it may come back to 
maybe they fell back into their eating habit and then they've come up with another issue or it happens absolutely if you end up having a body that's able to develop disease you're somebody who has demonstrated that you're at high risk of having these things occur I think people are very responsive when they have a heart attack or something happens. They're very responsive and willing and they're receptive to making changes. But I think what will happen over time is that enthusiasm will wane unless they find that they're getting something from making these changes. Mm. So, you know, often I'll you know, I'll bring my patients back into the office after after a heart attack. I'll bring them back every couple of months just to make sure that that they're doing what they're supposed to be doing. And what about the people who really embrace it? They're like, uh, we're in. Like, Dr. Shankman, we are in. I am going. What do I need to do? What do I need to do? I've got some of those. And people listen to me. And what happens? um, What have you seen for their trajectory of health and recovery? In my practice, if anybody who has really gone whole food plant-based after having a cardiac event, having a stent, a heart attack, I've never seen one of those people need another stent or have Mm -hmm. another heart attack happen. That's just, my own personal experience, and it's kind of reflected if you look at Dr. Esselstyn's data. He published a paper in 2014 looking at nearly 200 people who followed his whole food plant-based diet, and those who followed it, very few had anything bad happen to them. And he was working with people who were literally on death's doorstep. Indeed, yes. Who they were, you know, you've got a month, like, and you're going to have a heart attack and die, and people who, you know, have lived out many decades after working with him and he's in and in that in that respect he was very very strict no oil and so where do you stand with that like the no oil type of regimen i think dr esselstyn's studies are very powerful when i talk to my patients i will suggest to them that they look at dr esselstyn's book prevent and reverse heart disease it's it's a great book it's a great discussion of the power of diet to reverse heart disease and i'll I'll show them that this is what his diet has shown. That's this, that's curves. That's my dog, and um, apparently my other dog is very excited. To Our join listeners us as well. are so used to having dogs in the background. <laughs> okay, good, good. <laughs> we have Aww. curves and Ozzy with us, and they are retired racing greyhounds, and they're amazing, and they just want attention. That's all. <laughs> that's all. <laughs> so where was I? Oh, Esselstyn's diet. Yes. You know, I, I encourage patients to, to lean in that direction. I am not an absolutist. If somebody feels like it is going to absolutely stress them out to be completely without oil, without nuts, without seeds, without avocados, you know, by all means, if for some reason you happen to go out to dinner one night and you get a plant-based meal that might have been cooked in some oil, it's not going to be the end of the world. That's, that's kind of my thoughts on it. I myself... I. I do not follow Esselstyn's diet. I am a vegan. I am, for the most part, whole food plant-based. I do eat a little bit of processed stuff. But that said, I don't have coronary artery disease. So I, I myself, and my own diet choices, I, I live in balance. Mm-hmm. And how did you, what is your plant-based story? When did you, when did you, because you were vegetarian first. Yes. So how did you become vegetarian? I became a vegetarian in high school. I was 16 years old. They want their mommy right now. <laughs> My dogs are being very attentive right now. This is a little weird. (laughs) So my brother was the first vegetarian in my family, and he's three years younger than me. So he was 10 years old, and he went to school, and for a science project for the day, they were dissecting chicken wings. And the teacher pulls out this package of Tyson chicken wings, and they go to dissecting them. And something in my brother's brain said, wow, this is a chicken. I don't want to eat chickens anymore. And I think he came from home from school and my mom had picked up McDonald's for dinner. And my brother said, nope, I, I, I'm not going to eat this. My, my little 10-year-old brother said, nope, not going to eat this. Well, here we are. It is now like 28 years later, my brother is still a vegetarian. And I thought this was like the dumbest thing in the world. I had gone through my phase maybe when I was like eight years old. And I had said, oh, you know, for a moment I realized, oh, that, that hamburger was a cow. And then I got over it. At that time, I didn't eat fish because I had pet fish, and for some reason, I thought fish are my pets. I'm not going to eat fish, but you know, chicken, hamburger—that didn't bother me. And I used to make fun of my brother. He was my little brother, and I'd say, "We're going to go meet my friends at Taco Bell, and we're going to eat meat." 
And he gets so mad and so annoyed. Oh, and he's like this little, like, stoic 10-year-old, like, I'm going to save the chickens and all the animals. Because it sounds like he did it for ethical reasons. Absolutely, yeah. <laughs> but uh, he, he joined PETA, and we got literature to the house, and there'd be things sitting around. And, and I'd start reading it, and you know, slowly things kind of percolated into my brain. And I thought, you know, maybe, maybe this is what I should be doing, too. But I kept that to myself. Three years after my brother went vegetarian, um, we're Jewish, and it was time for his bar mitzvah. And as part of the bar mitzvah, the boy will wear something called tefillin, and it's a, a religious garment. It is a leather strap that you wrap around the arm, and you also wrap around around your head. And it's leather, clothes made from a cow. And my brother said, no, it's from a cow. I'm, I'm not going to do that. And my father said... You know, look, this cow has been dead for 70-something years. This is your grandfather's tefillin. If you will wear this for your bar mitzvah, I will go vegetarian for a year. And my brother wore the tefillin for his bar mitzvah. It's been, what, 25 years? My father's been vegetarian ever since. That's amazing. Wow. And around that time, I came to the same conclusion. I just, animals are my friends. I don't want to eat animals. I'm going to be a lacto-ovo-vegetarian. And... Sometime around then, maybe a, you know, maybe a few months later, my mom just kind of got sick of the fact that there was just there was no meat in the house, and she's like, "Fine, I guess I'll do it too." And she's been vegetarian ever since as well. So the whole family is now vegetarian. Whole family is vegetarian. Amazing. My brother's married. His wife's vegetarian. He's got four girls, all vegetarians. Wow. Nice. And then what was the progression to veganism for you? Well, the progression for me to veganism was it was kind of a long progression because in college. I, I ate horribly. I mean, I ate pizza and ice cream and like just every other college, college kid. <laughs> Pretty much, yeah. You're Pretty away much. from the home. <laughs> you get everything you want in the cafeteria. Yeah, it's oh, amazing yeah. that we yeah. survived that phase, that we all don't have stints. Indeed, yeah. But, you know, I think as, as a lacto-ovo-vegetarian, I did improve my diet over time because something in my head said, you know, I'm going to be a doctor, I'm going to be taking care of people and telling them what to do. Maybe I need to clean up my own act and set a good example. So in medical school, I started eating vegetables. It's kind of weird. My first real exposure to vegetables that I actually liked was was on a date. Some guy I was dating took me for Indian food. And I said, wow, Indian people make vegetables taste good. And then I gradually over time realized you can make vegetables taste good. And I started exercising a little bit more as well. I started doing aerobics and doing some strength training and ultimately running. But I went vegan about 12 years ago. It was during my cardiology fellowship training. And it, it initially was some of the animal rights stuff that turned me on to it. I think I saw a Compassion Over Killing brochure at a restaurant and I was looking at it and I saw, wow, you know, what, what chickens go through to produce eggs, what these poor, you know, cows go through to produce milk. And this is really feeding the, the veal industry. I mean, how, how can I be part of this? And then the other part of me was like, but I like chocolate brownies. And mm. so, and how can those possibly be vegan yeah. and be good? Exactly. Yeah. And it took a while for me to think things over. And in the meantime, here I am studying cardiology and I stumble across Dean Ornish and Caldwell Esselstyn's work that demonstrates that a true plant-based diet can reverse heart disease. And it all came together for me in one day. I just said, I'm not going to do this anymore. I'm not going to eat animal products. So that was March of 2005. And I've, I've been vegan since. In March of 2005, that was the same year that you did your first triathlon. It is the first year. Which I is the same year triathlon. I did yes. my first. It was actually the same month that I did my first triathlon, September 2015, yeah. right? But I was not vegetarian. I was probably vegetarian probably, at the time, yeah. but not vegan. So how did you ever survive as an endurance athlete on this vegan diet? <laughs> better than most, I would say. I feel like I... Like I recover better after a long workout than some of my friends and training partners who were omnivores. I totally agree. I mean, you saw me. I just did an ultra, my first ultra marathon two days ago. And you're not walking funny. No, I have some soreness on the sides of my quads. And but your longest run was. And my longest four hours, run leading into it was three hours. And you were out there for over eight. Yeah. Wow. Which probably if I had a longer run, maybe I wouldn't have been out there so long. That's another discussion. But yeah, I mean, the whole thing was I was literally like healing Mm -hmm. from 
uh, an almost injury as I'm training for my first ultra marathon, as I'm training for a uh, half Ironman, which is three weeks from now, actually less than three weeks. So I'm like training for a half Ironman, training for an, my first ultra while I'm healing from an injury that was about to blow. And so, but the recovery is amazing. And, you know, I want to say like, you know, go plant-based and you'll be faster. But I, I and I don't think that it, the plant-based equals the faster, the plant-based equals the quicker recovery, but hands down. I mean, and there's even science behind this mm -hmm. now. But I mean, you listen to any of, you know, Rich Roll or Gene Bauer was up there with us from Farm Sanctuary. He did the race and we were talking about just how quick recovery is. And I think because of the quick recovery, you're able to train more. So more training in a shorter amount of time, you can get more load on your body. And that is what I think will equal, you know, faster paces and more PRs and more races and less wasted uh registration money because you're injured and you can't get to the starting line doesn't mean that you won't get injured doesn't mean that you won't get sick but like i can't remember the last time i had a cold neither can i oddly I mean, enough years like we're yeah. yeah unless you don't want to be always on right <laughs> we have no excuse to stay in bed um so how was the first triathlon yeah what one was it I did the Finger Lakes Sprint Triathlon in Canandaigua, New York. Yeah, we know that. We spent seven weeks up in Lake Placid. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so right. yeah, yeah. We heard we heard a lot about that one. Yeah, Finger Lakes. I actually was an injured runner. I had this nagging foot injury that just I couldn't shake. And being stubborn and in my twenties, the concept of maybe you should just let it rest just like didn't exist in my head. And so it would start to get better and I'd start running on it and I'd injure it again. So finally, I rested my foot. I, I got into a pair of orthotics. But in the meantime that I couldn't run, I started doing things that I hadn't done before. I started riding a bike, which I hadn't done in years. I had this mountain bike from college that was just gathering dust in the basement. And I pulled it out of the basement. I took it to the local bike shop thinking I was just going to get laughed out of the shop. And they said, you know, we can, we can make this work. So a couple bucks later, I had a functional mountain bike and I started riding with a local women's riding group. This is near Rochester, New York. And we'd go out on bike rides on Tuesday nights. And I didn't realize at the time, but my bike was not the greatest bike. I had to work a lot harder to keep up with everybody. So I finally bought a road bike and wow, it felt really good. I could you know, clip my feet in and I could go. I also started doing more swimming. I, I knew how to swim, but I had never really done much organized swimming. So I joined a master swim group. I remember they forced me to learn how to breathe bilaterally. And so finally, when I could run again, I approached my spin class instructor. Her name is Mary Eggers. She's a triathlon coach. And oh, we, we know Mary, Mary Eggers. You know, yes. Oh my gosh. <laughs> we totally know yeah. her. Yeah. That's hilarious. So <laughs> You know, I, I didn't really know that much about her other than somebody told me she was a triathlon coach. So She's I, a total badass. She yeah. is a total badass. <laughs> so I walk up to Mary and I said, I, I think I think I want to do a triathlon. It was like April or May. I said, do you think I could be ready for the sprint triathlon in September? She said, yeah, sure, I'll coach you. So she coached me to my, my first sprint triathlon. That's awesome. And then you crossed the finish line. And were you like, I want more of that? Were you like... I'm good. I don't need any more of that. I was on a total high when I crossed the finish line. I was like, this is so much fun. I need to do more of this. But it was September in upstate New York, and like that was the end of triathlon right, right. season. So, you know, I did. I waited until the next next year. And when did the um, so when did the Ironman come? About. I didn't do an Ironman until five years into being okay. a triathlete. I mean, I took things really slowly. Mm -hmm. I, it wasn't until my third year as a triathlete that I did my first Olympic distance. And then I think another year after that, that I did my first half iron. So my sixth year as a triathlete was my first Ironman. What took you from the half iron to the full iron? I knew I wanted to do it, but I didn't know that my head was really in it to be sitting on a bike or running for as long as I needed to, to do it for. And you signed up and raced in Lake Placid. Yes. One of our favorites. Favorites. Absolute spots. favorite races. But you were in New York at the time. Were you doing a residency up there? I actually wasn't living in New York at the time. I went to medical school in Albany, New York, and I actually did my family practice rotation 
in Keene. Well, I lived in Keene. Oh, okay. Cool um, yeah. And I did my rotation in a town called Crown Point, which was nearby. So I lived in the Adirondacks for like six weeks during medical school. So I'd spent a fair amount of time in, in Lake Placid. And I remember it was a really cool place. So I decided that would be a cool place to do my first Ironman. And what did you think of it? I thought the course was pretty awesome. You know, it wasn't too hilly, but there were a few hills. It was beautiful. The lake was nice run was good i loved being able to finish in the the olympic oval that was pretty neat it's such a it's like the best finish yeah it's it's kind of what kept us going back and back for more and Mm -hmm. we have done it the past few years and we wait to the midnight finishers like we'll come back out and we'll be in that oval cheering people on the energy in there is just there's something about that olympic vibe it is especially in that city too Mm What was your nutrition like for an Ironman? Like, can you think? Can you remember back to? You've done more than one. You also did. I've done two Ironmans. Okay. I did Ironman Boulder in two thousand. Oh yeah, as well. cool. nice, yeah. nice hot one. Yeah, we hot and yeah. dry we and elevation. For... Yes, oh, that's cool. right. We lived there for a long time. Oh cool. Yeah. So what? So let's go back to twenty fifteen yeah. then. What does your nutrition look like for an Ironman being, um, you know, plant based? Because all of these, you know, this I, I call it kind of techno food. You know, the gels and the bars. They're not all vegan. That there's a lot of whey, and some of them are milk fat mm-hmm. or things like that. So what were you using during your training and racing? Well, most of what I use in my training, I, I like to rely on like real food, just because I don't love putting chemicals and that type of stuff into my body excessively it just it just doesn't feel right mm. so if if i go for like a long run i'll usually have like a bag of medjool dates tucked away and if there's like somewhere that's an aid station i might have a banana somewhere like this weekend i did a 20 mile trail run and and my boyfriend was marking the course so he was up ahead so i think he buried a couple of bananas for me along the course had a little arrow with a little line point where my bananas and a, a big jug of water would be Sometimes if I'm feeling really inspired, I might like pack a baked sweet potato, like if I'm going on a long bike ride with me, that's it's a little cumbersome to carry on a run, but on a bike, you can kind of pack a few things along. In terms of like hydration, I actually like coconut water. I'll get a bottle, I'll fill it with half coconut water, half tap water, and that'll make me happy. I'll get some electrolytes along with my hydration as I go. And during like these Ironmans, were you using Whole Foods or were you relying on more like quick sugar spikes kind of? Well, I do use a little bit of that stuff in my training, not a whole lot. But during the Ironman, I mean, I was able to, for the most part, pack a fair amount of like actual, like real stuff. Like I was able to, you know, have some dates with me and I had a banana waiting for me in in the first transition area and I had my, um, my special needs bag had a few things in it. But yeah, of course, I had a couple of gels with me and I had some, you know, some shot blocks with me as well. I mean, our take on that is, you know, when you're eating a, a solid, healthy diet, mm-hmm. it, we've relied on, you know, that kind of food for pretty much all of our Ironmans up until now. And I think that's starting to change. It's one thing I loved about the Ultra because there was so much. I was hiking, you know, like there's not, you can't, I couldn't at my level run the whole thing. So I was able to like take in a peanut butter and jelly sandwich, you know, Mm -hmm. it didn't have to rely. I didn't actually take any kind of gels or anything like that. But if you're eating a really solid, healthy diet, I think it's okay, you know, to train a little bit with it to get your body used to it. But also on race day, you know, get what you need. And if that's Mm -hmm. what you're relying on, then use it. There was a time, BJ, when like you were eating Cliff Blocks on a Saturday night for dessert. Yeah, I, would have, <laughs> I was out of control with those things. When they came out, or the power bar, power gels had the little squishy stuff in the middle of them. Oh, yeah. They were so good. But to Jess's point, I strongly agree that if your diet and your day-to-day fuel is whole foods, mm-hmm. you can get away on race day with fueling with bananas and we use Amrita bars, which are out of New York and they're totally plant-based, gluten-free, all of that. And then actually on the run, you know, I fueled my last marathon with Coke. I tried to do Coke. I never drink Coke, (laughs) but in a race I'll use Mm -hmm. Coke and bananas. Mm -hmm. So it's back to, you don't need all this stuff. And I think that the marketing in these long distance events makes you think that you're going to all of a sudden collapse because you don't have the energy to get through it. But in reality, you proved it that you can just use whole foods. Mm-hmm. We constantly do our races with whole foods, mostly bananas. And we also find that we don't need as much as we used to need. 
Like, I don't take in as much as I used to take in. Like, these regimented every 15 minutes. I'm more of really in tune with my body, which actually leads me to a subject I want to talk to you about. When you train, because I know you're training for a marathon right now, when you train, do you do training, like, using data and then sometimes without? Do you do anything, like, on feel, kind of getting the feel for how your pace is and how your body's feeling at that pace? Well, I'm training a little bit differently now. I have a... a a friend who's kind of given me a, a coaching plan. It's much based on some of some of Phil Maffetone's mm-hmm. theory. Oh, we love Phil Maffetone. Yes. <laughs> totally, totally so, get that. Yeah. So I'm running at what is considered to be my math pace yes. for most of my training. How is that going? So this is, sounds like it's new and it's a switch. It's new and it's different. And it's hard for me to judge because I'm kind of in a different phase of my life. I would say that like my peak triathlon years were probably like 2012 through 2015 when I was really slim and I was really into it and I had a coach and I was just training hard and, you know, really doing really well at the races. I've switched my focus in my life a little bit so that I'm not training as hard right now. I mean, I still work out five or six days a week, but it's not like what I was doing before, you know, the two workouts a day and the the four-hour bike ride on Saturday morning and the two-hour swim on Sunday and so forth. So it feels a little bit different because I'm a different athlete at this point and I know that I'm not going to be as fast at this marathon as I was when I ran this same marathon five years ago. So I'm kind of mentally having to wrap my head around that. But the the training feels, it feels good. I was, we're a big math proponents like I love the method and and I've that's the way I've trained mm-hmm. I haven't always trained but mm-hmm. the majority of my training has been in that and I feel and so I don't want to put words in your mouth but I th- I think the math training is so consistent and keeps mm-hmm. you healthy mm-hmm. that you know I've numerous times been come off a race and done like four or five weeks of strictly just math training and I've come close to a PR in my 10k just from racing it with no speed work so to say, so you may come, you may, even though you don't feel like you're doing the same training, you may come to your marathon and you may push out the same similar time. The math training just keeps you steady, balanced, and it just keeps building that engine and building that engine. And the speed work is the, is the stuff that you kind of like sprinkle on. Mm-hmm. But I found for us and for our athletes, it just, it keeps everyone healthy and constantly moving forward. Because when you're hurt, you're not training. So how are you moving towards that goal? We love the math method. It's definitely what what I trained you on too as well. Yeah, absolutely. And as I was healing for an injury and running longer than I've ever run, it really worked well for me. So I want to dig in a little bit to this idea of you're kind of changing as an athlete. And this is a really hard thing. I mean, let's face it. We've got three Ironman here on the couch, right? We don't do this because we're lazy, like, or that we don't have type A tenden- you know, tendencies, right? You're not a cardiologist because you don't like to succeed. So how has this, because this requires letting go. Like mm-hmm. you have to let go of that athlete you used to be to embrace the one that you are now. And the one that you are now is, is that's the truth, right? Like, because the only thing we have is right now. Right, this athlete that you have right now that you're embodying, but wrapping your head around it, what has that looked like for you? Like is is the the peak athlete, does she haunt you a little bit? She does. <laughs> she absolutely does. I I I think it really kind of hit home back in October. I signed up for a 5K, and I used to be able to run a 5K. Uh, my PR was something just under 23 minutes, which respectable. I got out there and I ran my first mile in like just under eight minutes a mile. And then my next two miles, I just fell apart. And I think my finishing time was like 27 minutes. I'm like, oh my God, what's happened to me? (laughs) And I just had to realize that, you know, I don't have the same body that I had a couple of years ago. I don't have the same training regimen that I have. And this is what I bring to the table right now. But it's also... I believe that we choose everything. Like you're you're choosing the the life that you're living now. And I'm going through a very similar thing. Like I I've got this podcast and BJ and I are actually working on a huge project right now with Yogi Triathlete and some, you know, working on a cookbook and all these things going on and I can't train 23 hours a week anymore. So, yeah, my time's gone down a little bit and it's that constant letting go and realizing that you know, when I walked in the door tonight, you were like, how was your ultra? You weren't like, what was your finish time? 
you know, and that if it wasn't a certain time, like you were going to send me back to the driveway. People don't care. We are, as humans, we've got this condition of just being, it sounds really negative, but really self-absorbed that like if we don't get this time or we're not that athlete that we used to be that you know we're we're not worthy of it but we're just changing and I think it's so important to embrace where we are and I see that I'm choosing I want to meditate more like to me like that's I see that now is that is the most important thing that I can do in any day far beyond a swim far beyond a bike or a run because I know when push came to shove the other day and I was out on that course I was in complete peace, even though my body was under a lot of physical stress. You know, the what I'm choosing is helping me so much because on race day, it's all mental, and it's and it's all mental in our ability to accept where we are as athletes, and the fact that we're out there, and you, the fact that we're out there and moving is so wonderful because this amazing body was meant to move, and you see so many people that are not moving. Mm-hmm. Yeah. One of the things that I've had to overcome as mentally is that caring about what other people think. And I feel like you know, my patients, they, they know I'm a triathlete. They know I, I do races. And my patients, like they'll ask me, like, so, so what, what's your next Ironman? What's your next race coming up? And I don't know that they care that I'm first place or last place. They just think it's cool that their cardiologist is out running and setting a good example. And as long as, you know, I can embrace that, I don't, I don't get self-conscious. I don't anymore. Because it's you and it's, it's you. And I'm not pointing you out because it's mm-hmm. me too and it's BJ too. And it's mm-hmm. every other athlete that's listening to this podcast. And this is why I wanted to dig into this is that when they say, or, so I'm going to put, I'm going to project myself into your position. I've got a patient coming in saying, so when's your next Ironman? And I know my own ego. It's like, oh my God, like I, I'm, I don't have one on the calendar. And so now I'm not even a good doctor anymore, you know? And it's like, but they're not thinking that at all. They have no clue what they're saying. Right. They're just excited that they have a doctor out there that's moving and is a good example and has a healthy heart because I'm sure you know some cardiologists that maybe don't have a healthy heart. And it's they're just asking because they want to engage, but mm-hmm. we take so much on. And then there's like guilt and shame and all this other stuff that goes along with it. And if we can stop seeing from just our eyes in and we can see from their eyes in, we can see like, wow, I have accomplished some pretty amazing things and I'm still moving my body and I'm still healthy and I'm fulfilled. Like. You had mentioned, I don't know if it was before we put the, or maybe you just did it a couple minutes ago, that you're living a a balanced life or that you are eating a balanced diet and you're more balanced in your life. And Mm -hmm. so that means that something's got to give. Right. And um, and I've found the same thing. And so it's it's always just watching that voice in our head Mm -hmm. and asking if it's true, getting really curious about like, is that true? Because there's no scientific data on if it's true or not. It's just what we're going to buy into. So it's interesting to see what we buy into. And I, as I moved through groups of people on the course this weekend, I was getting a lot of taste of what they were buying into. And I said to BJ, mm-hmm. I said, I was on that course by myself like 95% of the time because I would catch up with a group and they would be complaining about how they felt or, oh, I'm, I'm dying. And I'm like, I can't be in this energy. Like I can't be in this pod of people that are buying into that voice in their head. And so are there different things that you notice in those moments that help you let go of maybe any extra pressure that you're putting on yourself? Yeah, so it's, it, do you frame it in a way? So if a patient does say, you know, when's your next race? Like how in that moment you want to tell them, but you don't want to tell them because then they'll look at the results or like, how do you... As, in that moment. I don't know if my patients are sophisticated enough that they're looking up race results or going to Athlinks and saying, well, let's see how she was doing in 2010. I bet you'd be surprised. (laughs) I know they they punch me up in Google from what I understand. But, you know, I tell them what I've got coming up. So patient comes in, they're like, so so when's your next triathlon? I'll say, well, you know, I'm not doing a triathlon, but I am doing this marathon that's coming up. It's called Mountains to Beach. And I'll tell them about it. It starts in Ojai. It ends in Ventura. It's a beautiful course. I'm so looking forward to it. Do you feel a pressure to continue in athletics? I 
feel like on some level my identity as a physician has somehow been framed by my participation in triathlon and athletics, but I, but I feel like that's also part of who I am. Yeah. So even apart from that, I feel like no matter where I am in life, I'm going to be doing something even if I'm not signing up for an Ironman yeah. race or a half Ironman race. You know, I'm going to be swimming or I'll be going running or occasionally you know, taking a spin class. That's just just who I am you're just you're an active person right exactly back to the balance like Mm -hmm. you're you can you're gonna be balanced it's the low stress it's the fuel it's the being active like it doesn't it doesn't necessarily have to be a race right you don't need to put a race on the calendar right you don't have to no one's forcing you to Mm -hmm. and if you skip a race there's plenty of other races to sign up for so I think it's leading to that balance. Like as mm-hmm. long as you're doing things that your patients see mm-hmm. that you're living a balanced life and you're doing this, this, and this, it may rub off. Like it may just may make an impact with one person and maybe they're inspired. Have you seen that at all with any of your patients? I have seen that. You know, my patients tell me they'll, you know, I was I was thinking about you and I decided that maybe I really do need to start walking and so now I'm walking 30 minutes a day. And if I can inspire somebody to do something as simple as that, I feel like I've been successful. That's so amazing. Do you find that people, getting back to some diet talk, meaning nutrition, do you find that people have a fear around eating fruit? Because you said that's one of the things that you recommend. I do. People think fruit has sugar and sugar is going to give them diabetes. So I think it's important to help people distinguish between natural sugar that you find in fruit versus the sugar that you find in processed foods and that people who actually consume more servings of fruit actually have a lower incidence of diabetes. And when you were in medical school, what was your nutrition because it seems like you're pretty well versed in nutrition and you're working with your patients on it. Mm-hmm. What was your nutrition education like in medical school? I was at one of the, shall we say, more progressive medical schools that actually had a nutritional curriculum, but I wouldn't say it had the nutritional curriculum that was necessarily the most practical for practicing medicine in this day and age. I remember learning about Kwashiorkor and Marasmus and the little babies in Africa with the big bloated bellies because they were malnutritioned. And we learned about what each of the various vitamins is and what are the various vitamin deficiencies lead to. But we didn't really talk about the high fat, highly processed, high sugar diet that leads to the diseases that we treat. We didn't talk about that. So how did you educate yourself? Because it seems like you educated yourself. Yeah, I, I, I read, I found books. I remember during my um, cardiology fellowship, I know I, I led a journal club where we reviewed Dean Ornish's trials on plant-based diets and that heart disease. That is so geeky, I <laughs> so love it. I love it, <laughs> To yeah. teach my fellow um, <laughs> cardiology trainees. Yeah, no, it's been a lot of a lot of stuff on my own. I know that I did the eCornell course as well on nutrition. It's, it's led by um, T. Colin Campbell. Mm-hmm. Yeah, BJ did that as well. Okay. What has been the reception of the other doctors that you work with? Do you find any curiosity from the other doctors? Have you received any resistance? You'd be surprised. People are actually fairly receptive to it. I started doing presentations at some of the local hospitals on plant-based diets. And I think the first one I did might have been in 2009 or 2010 at Tarzana Hospital. And the audience is mostly like older men who are retired who kind of come back just to to keep fresh on, on what's going on in medicine. And I thought I was going to have tomatoes thrown at me. (laughs) But I I gave my talk, and I actually had a good reception. I was showing that plant-based diet can reverse heart disease. And I know one of these older retired physicians, he stood up. He said, you know, I I didn't know this. You've taught me something new about diet and and health. So, So that felt good. And I know I've had a positive influence on some of the doctors, even within my own practice as well, who are counseling their patients more on on nutrition and diet, and maybe even taking some of it to, the, to heart in their own lifestyle. And when, when you go to, I'm assuming you go to like conferences and things like that, so you're going to conferences on, you know, cardiology, and mm-hmm. what are you seeing as far as like the food that's being served there? Do you feel it? Because 
you know, I'm not as surprised as maybe I would have been five years ago, mm-hmm. you know, that people are really open to it because the movement is huge and mm-hmm. the mountains of evidence are undeniable at this point. But are you still seeing a little bit of like some stuck in the past with the food that's being served or maybe sponsors of some of these conferences? Yes, it's always frustrating to go to a cardiology conference where a steak dinner is being served. It's it's a little frustrating. But that said, I attended the American College of Cardiology conference in Chicago in 2016, and Dr. Kim Williams um, was the president of the American College of Cardiology at that time, and he is plant-based. And a lot of that conference really was geared towards lifestyle. And I think Dr. Esselstyn spoke. I think one of the proponents of the Mediterranean diet spoke. So there was a lot more emphasis on lifestyle and how we need to improve how much people move and what people eat on a population level to get people healthier. So it was good to see that. And you just kind of touched upon the fact that it's not just one thing. It's not just the food. It's also the movement. But where do you come in? You've mentioned Dean Ornish a few times, and he's super heavy on the – not super heavy, but he definitely is a believer on the mindfulness and the meditation, as am I. Where do you fall on that? I think it's important. I think mindfulness is important. I think group support is important. And having a healthy mind is so important so that you can make the right lifestyle choices. Because you are, I think what mindfulness brings to it is that you're awake mm-hmm. in that moment. And you, and you can feel that maybe that Big Mac or that Pop-Tart or whatever it may be doesn't make you feel as good as a bowl of strawberries. Right. Yeah. And so do you have a mindfulness practice yourself? Do I have a mindfulness practice myself? <laughs> it's certainly a work in progress. As all of <laughs> us. It's a practice. It's not perfection. <laughs> I, I'm trying to meditate more and I'm trying to set aside five minutes every day to just sit quietly and just just breathe. And I, I get really antsy during that, but I'm, I'm really just trying to focus and do it. Um, yoga, I do some yoga. I should do more yoga. I'm, I will admit I'm very negligent there. I love restorative yoga. It's my favorite kind of yoga. The stuff where you like stand on your head and I, I just can't really get into that. But just the stuff where you, you hold poses and you just breathe and you relax. Like that's my kind of yoga. I love that stuff. I think it's a great counterpart to what What you you do do in your daily Mm -hmm. life like you're really using your brain and you know your intellect all day and so to get you into a restorative class where you are getting connected with your breath and and you know not having to thread a catheter you know through somebody's body is probably the perfect practice for you I love it so yeah I mean it's 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 almost this it's a very similar taking the pressure off of you know Uh, our racing regimens and embracing where we are it's you know five breaths a day amazing one breath a day amazing you know and it's just meeting yourself where you're at constantly as you do with your patients right like look at us as humans we work with people and we we want to see them succeed and you know I personally want to assist people who are ready to be assisted and may I always do that for myself as well Right? Meet myself exactly where I'm at. And I think as triathletes, that's such an important one, especially when we cross the finish line and we don't see that time that we thought we were going to see. You know, and they sometimes. Hop back on the horse and get back out there. Yeah. You, know, you need exactly. to take that downtime and sort of figure things out. When you, when you say, because this is something I struggled with with meditation before I had a steady practice, when, you, when your thoughts are coming in, what's stopping you from sitting down for five minutes? Is it thoughts of your day ahead is it thoughts of you could be doing something else is it everything it's (laughs) a little bit of everything yeah (laughs) i mean i I, it's hard to break away from work sometimes mentally because i'm always thinking about my patients and who's sick and who i can help and who's not on the right path who i can set on the right path but i think it is important sometimes to just set that aside and not let that encompass my whole being 24 7. Yeah. And the mind is designed to think and analyze mm-hmm. and overthink and reanalyze, and that's what it does. So it's mm-hmm. just up there and it's doing its thing. But the way I describe it to the people that I work with, it's like your awareness 
is different from your mind. So when we're, when people say to me, well, my mind keeps going, I can't, I can't stop it. Well, no, don't try and stop it. That's crazy because it's not designed to stop. But pull your awareness out of that thought. Put your awareness on something else. Put it on your breath. And that might be every second. You might have to be like, oh, back to my breath, back to my breath, back to my breath. Mm -hmm. And that might be what can get frustrating with meditation, which is so funny. That's just something to laugh at because... That's exactly how it happens. You need to come... Like the thought would be coming in and I would be counting breaths. It'd be like one breath, two breaths, three breaths. And that's actually a technique, counting breaths. It's like a Buddhist technique to just count breaths. So it's giving that, that mind of ours something to do. It's saying, hey, instead of just like spinning off and going in your own direction, work with me. Like we're going to, I'm going to send you to another direction and we're just going to listen to the breath. But it's a, it's a work in progress. Mm-hmm. And so any breaths a day is going to be, it's going to make you, anyone, a more mindful person, a more conscious person. And then it overflows. And next thing you know, they, you know, they might be sitting at their table about to eat a huge steak and say, wait a minute. Mm. May not be the best. I might not want this. Or maybe those sweet cows that we just saw, that's on my plate right now. You just never know when the connection's going to happen. But do you talk to your patients about that at all? Do I talk to my patients about about the ethics of... No, no, not the ethics, no. (laughs) Uh, Like mindfulness. Oh, mindfulness. Yeah. I, I actually do. That's great. Because a lot of what I see, you'd be surprised of what comes into a cardiologist's office. I see a lot of depression. I see a lot of anxiety, yeah. a lot of stress. And I encourage my patients to find some level of being mindful. And I recommend my patients you know, do yoga. Yoga has actually been demonstrated to be a treatment for high blood pressure. You can lower somebody's blood pressure by about six points systolic just by taking two yoga classes a week. Yoga is great for depression and anxiety and meditation as well, very good for those things. So you know, rather than pushing pills on my patients, I say, let's try some basic things first. And I love, you, did you know Garth Davis? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, and, and even Joel Kahn, and you know, they'll take out their prescription pad and write, I want you to watch Forks Over Knives. Do you ever use your <laughs> prescription pad in that way? We don't have prescription pads anymore. <laughs> I love that. Oh, is that totally old that's school? Like, that's, that's like so 2005, because okay. we send all of our prescriptions electronically in this That's day how age. long it's been since I've been to a doctor. Yeah, I like, <laughs> I remember the prescription pads and right. like... <laughs> can't read the writing on there. I don't even know. I hope that pharmacists can read it. Yeah, we we really don't write anything anymore. I mean, we live on a computer. That's true. Okay, that's so that's funny. null and void. But do you give that kind of homework? Absolutely, yeah. I mean, I'll send somebody out of the offset. I'm not putting you on any medicines, but I want you to go find a yoga class. That's amazing. Oh, that's my God. Great. You are doing. You are doing amazing work. And this whole podcast is about people who are looking, finding, and living their purpose. And... I really think that you are on that path and you're making a massive impact. We never know the full extent of the trickle of our impact. And so you're seeing it, you know, sometimes maybe you're not even seeing it with some of the patients you work with, but what's happening at the dinner table and then who are they telling from that dinner table? And there's just this spider web effect that's so amazing and so powerful. And I think that's why we're seeing such a big movement to this plant-based lifestyle really and it is a lifestyle it's this conscious lifestyle of choosing what we eat choosing how we move our body choosing our mental nutrition the thoughts that we're going to be indulging and that to me is full spectrum wellness and it sounds like that that's what you're promoting and it's it's just amazing so Thank you for not only letting us into your wonderful house without even meeting us, but um, for doing what you do. And final word on how people can prevent this, like prevent heart disease. What are some things like boom, boom, boom that they they could do? they don't have to come see you. So they don't have to come see you so that you can train more. Okay, so if you want to put me out of business, I think it really just, it comes down to the basics. Just make sure that you are following a healthy diet, getting your fruits and vegetables every day, eat your meals at home, 
plant-based diet is ideal, but leaning in that direction as much as possible. Getting exercise, the basic guidelines suggest getting a total of 150 minutes of exercise a week, and that can be something as simple as going for a walk 30 minutes, five days a week. You know, find something you enjoy doing and just, just do it. Make sure you're being active. Control the stress in your life. Have Do things that you love to do. Have people who you love around you. Don't take things too seriously. Realize that there's a lighter side to everything. And of course, stay away from the bad stuff. Cigarettes, rugs, um, alcohol only in moderation. It's pretty basic how to keep your heart healthy. That's the thing, it is so basic. And I think it goes back to that kind of overactive mind, like we think it needs to be more complicated, but it's not. And the healing of the body can be from some really simple, basic steps Mm -hmm. that you can do right now. Yeah, that's awesome. All right, well, we will be rooting you on. when. When's the marathon? It's at the end of May. I heard about that one. It's amazing. It's on. Is it on road? It's on some roads, some bike trails. Mm, that sounds awesome. And how can people connect with you? You can connect to me. Best way is via my blog, veganheartdoc.com. I'm also on Twitter, at veganheartdoc. Awesome. Well, we'll put all that in the show notes. And thank you again so much for everything you're doing and for following your path and seeing all those connections in your life like that have led you to where you are now and acting on them and really being a major influence in changing the way that our nation serves up our medicine. Thank you. And thank you for inviting me to talk with you. Yeah. This has been great. Another connection. We love it. Awesome. So much. <laughs> All right, that's it, you guys. Our convo with Dr. Heather Shankman, interventional cardiologist and athlete extraordinaire, and she's doing it all on plants. We love it. We really hope you enjoyed the show as much as we enjoyed recording it. We are so thankful that Heather has followed her passion into medicine. And of course, for her brother, who started the whole vegan movement in their family. But seriously, you guys, she is educating her fellow doctors. She is educating her patients. And the trickle effect of that is beyond what I could imagine. Check out the show notes for ways to stay in touch with Dr. Shankman. We know we'll be following her story as she continues to embrace and educate the world on whole heart health healing. Thank you for tuning into the show this week. Please share this episode with one person who you know could benefit because it truly is the little basic changes that can make massive impact on health. Something that I really took away from last week's episode with Sid Garza Hellman is that eating a vegan diet or plant-based diet, whatever you want to call it, it's not extreme. It's simple. And I think it's important for us advocates to take the big deal out of it. Hundreds of thousands of people are suffering from heart disease, and we think that's the real big deal, especially since it doesn't have to happen. So I will leave you today with a quote from one of Heather's mentors, Dr. Caldwell Esselstyn. With the Western diet, he says, this guarantees that there's going to be what? A half a million people in this country this year who will have to have the front of their body divided, their heart exposed, then veins will be taken from their leg and sewn on their heart. Some people would say that is extreme. In good health, you guys, stay well and eat vibrant.